0: Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. My name is Noel. Welcome to the Diaspora of Yasharel. Excited to see you all here. We are a biblical community which upholds the Father's commands as well as the testimony of Yehusha HaMashiach. And so I have a confession to make. I slept all day because the Sabbath day is shackles, you know, chains, prisons, the penitentiary, and the stockade. The Father's set apart ways are so repressive. At any rate, th- that was. Hopefully everyone knows that's sarcasm. (laughs) After a week of work, I feel well rested. Um, I'm still a little groggy right now. I mean, I slept so well today, which is one intense of the fourth commandment to begin with, not to be groggy, but to work and then to rest. If you are listening to this recording on YouTube land or my podcast series, then I welcome you to give our live gathering a try sometime. I always put a link for our Discord community under each video. Please do consider coming by and saying hi. For the rest of you here who are who is joining tonight live, a reminder, take notes regarding anything read, spoken, or missed in the scripture passages. If that helps you, bring up points in the roundtable discussion afterwards. If you want to just leave your mics off and listen, that's totally fine too. No pressure either way. Last week, I gave the longest introduction ever. It clocked in at somewhere above 20 minutes and had to do with the Apostle Paul and all that. Specifically, Paul in the book of Acts. Even more specifically, that the Paul in the Book of Acts was Torah observance, according to the narrative of the book of Acts. Well, today is part two of that series: Paul and Torah observance in the book of Acts. Actually, we're going to be going over parts two and three tonight. And I dropped in the PDF into this here. Now, this comes from my document called The Torah Abides. And The Torah Abides was inspired by so many conversations that I have with people online who are repulsed or repelled or whatever, angry at the fact that they learned that Noel Joshua Hadley of the Unexpected Cosmology is Torah observance. And to most Christian thinking, like most people I've asked, when they're honest, they have this idea that it is impossible impossible to not sin and therefore why try like they've been convinced that jesus doesn't want them to try you know because there's the whole song jesus take the wheel right (laughs) so (laughs) so you know just going through all these different discussions with people and, and finding out why they believe that the torah has been done away with in in the New Testament, and they will, you know, just start grabbing at things desperately and trying to hurl them at you. And just taking each of these and showing unquestionably that from beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the Torah abides. It is upheld. It is the standard um, of righteous living. It is the definition of sin. Like if you if anyone claims that sin is legit, that people do sin, then there's a problem. Because what is the standard to define what sin is? It is the law, the Torah. If people claim, well, that doesn't matter because we have grace. You can't have grace without sin, without the Torah. The Torah abides. So I'm going through this, you know, argument through argument, picking it apart, going through Matthew. This is all basically New Testament stuff. And tonight we're going to be looking at two different arguments given in the book of Acts. One of the big ones is kosher eating. And when I say kosher, I hope everyone understands that that I myself am not kosher. I keep the dietary laws. Kosher, you know, refers to Judaism and you know rabbinical standards and so on and so forth. Um, Just you know, keeping the Torah is not Judaism. It is, (laughs) it's quite quite uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Now, for those of you going through this, this may be with me live and listening on YouTube and so on and so forth. This may be some very elementary stuff, and I I apologize for that. As you guys you know realize that. With the unexpected cosmology and all the different research that is put out, there's people on all different levels. There are people like, okay, been there, done that, seen it, I'm past it. Good. And other people who've they've never thought about this stuff before. And so particularly with that was the first question I had when I came over to Torah. What about Paul and the pigs or that the (laughs) the sheet of animals? So without further ado, I don't want to talk about this too much tonight. Let me pull this up. And so we'll be starting on page thirty five. It is called Pork is Still an Abomination. Peter's Vision Finally Explains. All right, here we are, page 35. Pork is still an abomination. Peter's Vision Finally explained. Oh, haven't you gotten the memo? Easter ham is kosher again, you tell me. I... I, I'm going (laughs) to growing up uh for easter every year we had what we call jewish ham and i could never figure that out like why why <laughs> ham for one day of the year on easter is called jewish ham but that's what it was called anyways that's why you arrived isn't it to explain my error bacon is an american pastime just like ice cream and politics and don't even get me started on bacon bits and ice cream the the hot dog is as American as bottle rockets and barbecues and the 56 designers of the Declaration of Independence, as well as drill sergeants and the Federal Reserve and bleeding on the flag to keep seven of its stripes red or whatever. Thanks in part to Peter's vision of the animals on the sheet. Something called the Boston Butts is up for grab again. But is it really, though? Let's have another look at the animal on the sheets, or the animals on the sheet, shall we? I will, if you will. And so we're going to be reading from the book of Acts, starting in verse 44. For the king had sent Sephirim by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Yahud, that they should follow the strange laws of the land, and forbid ascending smoke offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and feast days. Doesn't sound good. And pollute the sanctuary and holy people. Set up altars, the Asherah poles. That Oh, that does not sound good. And chapels of idols. And sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts. That they should also leave their children uncircumcised. There it is. (laughs) And make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanity. To the end, they might forget the Torah and change all the ordinances. First Maccabees chapter 1, verses 44-49. through 49. You will tell me that's not Peter's vision and that I'm already stalling, which is apparently a habit of mine. I'm just pointing out the reported fact that if the Antichrist were to incite the abomination of desolation all over again, baby back ribs would apparently be on the menu and therefore not a part of the problem. Cleanse the temple, but keep the coals glowing out back. Did I get that right? Yeah, I'm sure the ham hock had nothing to do with it. Wink, wink. Obviously, the point of this exercise, of the exercise we read in Maccabees, is explained to us. It was so that the people might forget all about the Torah and change its ordinances. Seems like a success, if I dare say so myself. Ask any Christian what caused the abomination of desolation, and they'd be hard-pressed to connect the dots between that and the skin on their Hawaiian pizza. Getting back even further in his story, and this is what we read. And Yahuwah said, Let the soil of the earth bring forth the living creature according to his kind, the kind that is clean and the kind that is unclean, cattle and creeping thing, and the creature of the earth according to his kind. And it was so, Genesis 1.24. It truly is difficult journeying back any further into his story than that. Seeing as how we've landed upon the fifth day of the creation week, and as you can clearly see, clean and unclean animals were identified, telling us that shrimp weren't metamorphosized into bottom feeders at Sinai, as many suspect. Just this very moment, you frantically flipped through the pages of your Bible and didn't read anything regarding clean or unclean animals on the fifth day of creation. That may be. The Aramaic Targum is an ancient translation, far older than the Hebrew Masoretic, in my opinion, and I am simply making a point to show that the transcribers knew the obvious when they stumbled upon it, which is precisely what, according to his kind, directs our attention to the clean kind and the unclean kind, each according to his kind. And now that I think about it, guys, I'm, I am can't believe that I overlooked the most obvious passage, which is that uh, Noah. (laughs) brought two uh, or a pair of every unclean animal into the ark and seven pair, 14 of every clean. I've had people defriend me over that. Fun fact, I am no evolutionist. I suppose it would take one, though, to bolster the claim that there haven't always been clean and unclean animals in nature and that additionally, somehow, the pig evolved into one when the children of Yasharal departed Egypt. Meanwhile, for the attuned observer, the world was literally designed in a specific way. To, ten- to deny that is like saying a doctor only suggests your baby sex, when in fact, the genetic makeup of boys and girls were just as apparent during the creation week as unclean and clean animals. Not even their roles are the same. Only the indoctrinated victims of our Roman controllers are incapable of seeing the difference between the two. Peter's vision doesn't part ways with anything we've already read in Maccabees or the Aramaic Targum, or I should just say Genesis, and I'll show you. Uh, starting in verse 9, on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Uh oh. And saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending upon him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Kepha, kill and eat. But Kepha said, Not so, Adonai, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What Elohim hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again unto heaven. Now, while Kepha doubted in himself what this vision uh, which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and stood before the gate, and called, and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Kepha or Peter, were lodged there. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 through 18. Oh no, it happens. The entirety of scripture has been defeated by a single vision. Kepha saw a host of animals on a sheet, telling us that Yahuwah has changed his mind about the whole abomination thing, as found in Leviticus eleven seven. All those people who kept their bodies pure Because Yahuwah told them the alternative was abominable. And for what exactly? So that Kepha could take a trip to the all-you-can-eat buffet? Vultures and pelicans, salamanders and horses and gorillas as well, as puppies and kittens, are finally on the menu. Who says the gospel can't taste good? Continuing. While Kepha thought on the vision, the Ruach said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Acts chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, KG, KJV. I don't know why I went with the KJV in this translation, but whatever. Hmm. I wonder if the three men have anything to do with the three visions. It's almost too convenient how Kepha is still chewing on the meaning of the, his thrice-repeated vision, and then three men arrive on schedule. But who am I to declare its meaning? Best to let Kepha interpret the dream for us. Let's keep reading. Then Kepha went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man and one that feareth Elohim and of good report among all the nations of the Yahudim, was warned from Elohim by a holy angel to send for thee in his house and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Kepha went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them. And he had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Kepha was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Kepha took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many that were come together. Acts 10, 21 through 27. I'm not really seeing anything here regarding the vision's interpretation. Maybe we should just give it up and make one up and then stuff our face with chili. I don't know. I get the feeling we will all be rewarded if we trudge on. Yeah, I would prefer it that way. After all, it is his right to conceal a matter and the honor of kings to seek it out. A few typos in there. I told you this is the Rivka era. Only problem is it's difficult finding anyone nowadays who will read a thing through to the end. I'm willing to bring up the standard and finish it if you are. To, you know, see if there's a moral to the story after all. So let's just keep reading Acts chapter 10, verse 28. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come into one of another nation. but Elohim hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. (laughs) I should do a little Keanu Reeves. Whoa. (laughs) Did Peter just interpret the dream for us? I think so. Let's not jump the gun quite yet, but I'm pretty certain Kepha interpreted the dream for us. Yes, I reread it again. He did. He said Elohim had shown him that he should not call any man common or unclean. Why did he leave out the part about the animals? Shouldn't Peter or Kifa tell them about the unclean animals being clean again? Kefa, why didn't you tell them about the animals? There are a lot of unhappy Baptists standing around at the church picnic right now. What is going on? I thought the vision was about pulled pork, not people. Silly Peter can interpret his own vision nearly as well with degrees and seminary students. You have to wonder if he corrects his own error later on. Let's keep reading in case that happens. Then Kepha opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that Elohim is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. I cheated and skipped ahead several verses. A couple uh, Sorry, let me repeat that again. I cheated and skipped ahead several verses. It was to say paper. But as you can see, Kepha interpreted his vision again. If you're counting on your fingers, that's his second clarification, and they remain the same. He said, Elohim is no respecter of pork slash that persons. Of a truth, I perceive is just as important. It's his way of letting us know what his analysis is, and that it is the Elohim given truth rather than a lie. If Peter were lying to us, he would say something to the Goyim like, I brought, this so- I, <laughs> I brought the sausages, fire up the grill, thereby, thereby causing the Baptists to perform backflips and somersaults with the napkin clinging to their neck. And just, in, I, I go after the Baptist a lot because I grew up in the Baptist church. So I, I know how a Baptist thinks. <laughs> and just in case that wasn't made abundantly clear to those of us inhabiting a later century, a much later century, he clarifies every nation that fears Elohim is accepted by him so long as they are workers of righteousness. Notice how he didn't say workers of lawlessness were accepted by Elohim. Nobody changed the definition of righteousness in this story. The Torah abides. Had somebody stuck a fork in the pork hocks and shanks, then that said individual would be a worker of lawlessness by definition. Recognizing the difference, though, is probably none of my business. In the following chapter, Kepha once more recounts the story and again interprets his vision for the other apostles. If you're still counting on your fingers, that's three times he interprets the thrice vision regarding the three people. And it just so happens to be about people. Amazing. You can't make this stuff up. So here we are in chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of Elohim. And when Kepha was coming up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou winnest in to men uncircumcised and did eat with them. Now that I think about it, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Yaakov and the Jerusalem group to add cutlets to their list of complaints. But they didn't. Actually, just so we know, the, the circumcision group here is not Yaakov and, and Kifa. Read it again. Nowhere do they claim that Kifa was gnawing upon an unclean animal, the circumcision group. Seems to me like what they were upset about is the fact that he ate among pagan men who had yet to cross over into the Abrahamic covenant by taking a knife to it. I could be wrong about that. Wouldn't want to make the mistake of so many seminary students. Best to let Kepha explain in his own words, continuing. But Kepha rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend, as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Kepha, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Adonai, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What Elohim hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come into the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. At what point during or any time after Kepha's explanation, do you think the brothers Yaakov and Yehuda went out and ordered a Cubano sandwich with the Yerushalayim group? Or how about a McRib? Kepha was hungry when the vision occurred, but it was to illustrate a point. He thought upon what the thrice vision might entail and thought upon it some more, and then finally concluded rightfully that the meaning could be found in the three men. If only others would think about this with as much consideration as Kifa did. The vision was obvious to him and everyone else whom he told it to. I would have to be purposefully deceitful in order to fill the cravings in my stomach by twisting his words but it happens everywhere and in practically every church denomination. Also, pork is disgusting, and it's practically in everything. That is testimony in and of itself that scripture is a living document and that Satan wants us richly unclean, committing abominations. All right, so that concludes that there. And I actually wish I started with that last week when going into Paul, because once again, we see the book of Acts is... All about the, the overarching narrative as well as the underlying currents of thought is about, as I explained last week, testimony versus false testimony. And we see that the apostles are constantly giving true testimony and they are being accused by other people, such as the circumcision group, of uh they are they're throwing false testimony at them. And the amazing thing about all this is that we're constantly uh, within Christianity, we are constantly believing the false testimony, even though the writer of the book of Acts, Luke is telling us that it is false testimony not to believe it. It's not true, but we do it anyways all the time. It's unbelievable. Like the the propaganda and the indoctrination It's unbelievable that it can be so in our face. And I've read that so many times in my life and I I didn't, I, I would read and go, oh, so pork is back on the menu, okay. If you go to the next page, page 43, it says Paul was Torah observant in Acts. And that's I, I retitled last week's last week's uh, the video on YouTube. It was called uh, Paul on trial, apostle or false apostle, which it, it made no sense contextually with this document because it, people would have gone like, huh, what are you talking about? So here we see Paul was Torah observant in Acts. I'm going to keep scrolling through this. That's what we went over last week. This week, we're going to be starting on page 53. Paul was still Torah observant in Acts 15. Now, I had mentioned, of course, that I purposely left out Acts 15. So I was able to complete that. I think this week I did it. So I got quite a bit done this week.
1: Starting on page 53, if you're following the document. The problem with the circumcision group wasn't
0: circumcision. Why would the Elohim of Yahshua command something that was naughty? No, their problem is that they were going around telling pagans to shave a little extra skin off for their salvation. Snip, snip. Surely you can see the problem with that. And if not, then I will attempt to guide you. Some of the pagans would go through with the demands of their proselytizers. But then afterwards, they would return to the pagan temples and take part in their pagan rituals. Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel might be included as another member of their uh, polytheistic entourage, but that is an adulterous marriage by any standard. Indeed, they would be worse off than before, having a circumcised penis and a stiff neck, but no circumcised heart to speak of. Yehusha may very well have been addressing this very issue when stating in Matthew twenty-three fifteen, Woe well unto you, scribe and perishim, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of Gehenna than yourselves. Imagine the Pharisees going around the world with their own rules and regulations and a pair of scissors. The mere fact that they were wrestling the Torah from the hand of Moshe to create modern Judaism via doctrines of men in the Babylonian Talmud is bad enough. How could anyone then become a twofold child of Gehenna, according to Yehusha? I suspect waving one's certificate of salvation while obstinately remaining a circumcised pagan has something to do with it. Worshiping Elohim how they see fit, according to the wisdom in their own eyes, rather than how Yahuwah has commanded we go about doing it. Contrarily, on the flip of that coin, there would come proselytizers of the Christian faith who despised obedience to the Torah, doing everything within their means to suffer any relationship with the law and the prophets. One such example is the unidentified writer of the first epistle of Barnabas, who seethed his teeth at the Torah. And I just need to stress here that there is nobody, no scholar, like, you guys know I don't put any weight on the scholars, and I'm calling upon them here. There's nobody that puts any weight upon the epistle of Barnabas being the historical Barnabas. That, for some unfortunate reason, his name is attached to that to give it more, uh, some sort of more clarity. Maybe because he was kind of connected with Paul, and it was all part of the, the let's go Torahless propaganda. Anyways, he absolutely hated it, the Torah. Look at how he describes the act of circumcision. But you will say, but surely the people were circumcised as a seal, telling us that he's actually writing to a crowd that is still upholding the law uh, of Elohim. But every Syrian and Arab and all the idol-worshipping priests are also circumcised. Does this mean that they too belong to their covenants? Why, even the Egyptians practiced circumcision, Barnabas 9.6. Notice how the writer of Barnabas is addressing an audience which clings to circumcision as a seal or a mark of righteousness among Elohim's people. It is clear that the writer of Barnabas that his motivations are. I bring him to the forefront of this discussion because though he despised the writings of Moshe, he does manage to bring up a good point. The surrounding nations were also practicing circumcision. The Syrians, the Arabs, as well as the Egyptians and the idol worshiping priests. If circumcision of the flesh is the gateway of salvation, does this mean that they were the Abrahamic covenant as well, having purchased their one-way ticket on the Paradise Express? Obviously, no. So again, why playing his part in Korah's rebellion, or I should say, while playing his part in Korah's rebellion, the writer of Barnabas at least brings up a good point. He most certainly does. There has to be something more to salvation than fleshly observances. Or else, idol worshippers were good to go. And I should just—I'll stop and point out here that the Epistle of Barnabas is so embarrassing to um, to modern day Christians that they don't even quote from it. Like you read his book, it's it's pretty pathetic. The some of the arguments he makes to break free of the Torah and claiming that anyone who observes it, uh, observes it has it wrong to begin with. He says that like. Um, really, you know, when Yah was saying, don't eat pig, what he's saying was don't eat with piggish people. Now he would say things like that. It's so embarrassing, but he was, he was like desperately grasping at straws to eat. He obviously loved eating pig. What I have just described is the framework for debate in the first century world. How does one enter a covenant with Yahuwah, the Elohim of Yashorel exactly? Well, I am about to show you. When last we met and I demonstrated that the entire narrative of Acts is one which proclaims Paul to be Torah observance and that furthermore only false testimony insists otherwise, I purposely left out Acts 15. That's the big one. It involves the Jerusalem Council and also happens to be the chapter wherein Christians claim the Torah was finally done away with good riddance. No, it doesn't. Quite the opposite, in fact. Read it again. Or how about we read it together? Starting in chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Yehud, taught the brethren and said, "Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moshe, ye cannot be saved." When therefore, Paul and, Bar- and Navi, that's uh, 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 Bartholomew had no small dissension and uh, disputation with them. They determined that Paul and bar and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. I'm sorry, it's Barnabas, not Bartholomew, which is kind of ironic because we just read from the epistle of Barnabas. And um, here we see Barnabas and Paul together. The issue arising in Acts 15 is precisely what I have already been describing. The ding-dong police were knocking on doors and asking converts to lift their togas as proof of admission. If some of these so-called converts weren't especially careful, they might meet their local barber in a Damascus back alley, scissors at the ready. I'm told that that really happened. They would actually track you down and circumcise you in a back alley if they needed to. The return trip home would be especially painful, if you know what I mean. But then look at how Dr. Lucas describes them, certain men. These weren't believers in Messiah. Just as telling, however, is that they weren't demanding skin from a sect of Christians who had already freed themselves from the Torah. If they were freed from the Torah, then they wouldn't be reading the Torah. Obviously, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so they would have had no other text to go by. If these certain men had deduced them to be of some other religion, they wouldn't have come knocking. The forefront issue is that believers in Messiah were seeking a covenant relationship with Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharal, via the instructions in righteous living as exclusively found in the Torah. Oh, I should, the Tanakh. And if anybody is curious, the Tanakh is just the writings in the Old Testament. Despite what fruit of the Ruach was being shown by them, the Wang patrol was going about declaring there were fiery hoops to be jumped through and specifically that they were going about them in the wrong order. Obviously, the matter was pressing enough that Paul and uh, Barnabas were asked to journey as representatives of a convoy to Laim, The hope was to entangle the ins and outs of the circumcision and salvation controversy with the apostles and the elders. The question that needs asked at this point is why Paul needed to receive their approval to begin with. He was under their authority, obviously. Specific to this council was Yaakov. He comes into the narrative soon enough, but I thought I'd go ahead and introduce him now. Christians are constantly telling me that Paul did away with the law in his writings, but then they will often admit that Yaakov clung to it in his own epistle. That would be an obvious contradiction then, especially since the entire narrative of Acts shows us time and again that Paul was under his authority. Here is what we read about Yaakov in the Gospel of Thomas. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Chapter 12 or segment 12, whatever you want to call it. The disciples said to Yeshua, We know that you will leave us. Who will be great among us then? Yeshua told them, When you find yourselves at that point, Go to Yaakov or James the Just, all that concerns heaven and earth is his domain. The Gospel of Thomas 12. I offer Thomas's evidence here only to demonstrate that multiple sources, in what might be argued from various traditions, all seem to highlight that Yaakov, the brother of Yehusha, was the man with the plan. Acts certainly agrees. It is Yaakov who offers the decision on how the set-apart assembly was expected to move forward in the face of the circumcision party, not Paul. I'm getting ahead of the narrative, but sometimes I just can't help myself. Continuing from verse 3, and being brought on their way by the called-out assembly, they passed through Phoenicia and uh, Shomeron, declaring the conversion of the other nations, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. There you have it. Paul and Barnabas were declaring the conversion of the other nations into the Hebrew faith and not the other way around. There was no severing, there was no severing happening at this point in his, his story or at any other point when the New Testament was being written. Saying Messiah is a fulfillment of the Torah should direct our attention to how we should walk it out And it's not the same thing as claiming Catholic or Protestant Jesus so perfectly observed the law of Moshe that he hacked it into pieces so that we wouldn't have to. That was a little wordy. I think I got through that sentence. Nobody is even remotely suggesting that here. Verse four of chapter 15. And when they were come to Yerushalayim, they were received of the called out assembly and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that Elohim had done with them. Verse five, there arose up certain of the sect of the Perishim, dun dun dun, which believed, huh? Saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to guard the law of Moshe. There is our second group of Yahudim. Most people read Pharisee in the name and stop paying attention, either thinking them to be the bad guys or completely confusing them with the first group of circumcisers. It says, though, that they believed. Yahushua HaMashiach was in their faith statement. And so, notice how their paradigm is completely flipped from the first group of circumcisers. Unlike the unbelieving circumcisers, it is not circumcision which grafts the goyim into the Hebrew faith. No, faith does. Obedience simply follows. After all, what would, what would faith be without faithfulness? Faith isn't simply a romantic notion, it is an action, a desire to walk as Yehusha walked, seeing as how he fulfilled the law, and that includes circumcision. Telling us it was still needful to circumcise the converts falls in line with their next statement, that they were expected to guard the law of Moshe. No matter how one attempts to dissect this, there is no representative group in attendance which sought to argue against the Torah. Verse six, and the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Kepha rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago Elohim made choice among us that the other nations by my mouth should hear the word of the Besora and believe the Besora is the gospel. And Elihim, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Ruach Hakadesh even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Acts 15, 6-9. Apparently, even the Yerushalayim group couldn't fully agree on the matter. Circumcision was important. If somebody is denying that, then Lucas has dropped the ball, as we are not told about those dissenters. The issue at hand clearly has everything to do with when somebody might enter a marriage covenant with the Most High. Kepha helps to settle the debate when standing up and giving testimony to the number of converts among the nations who had already received the Ruach Kadesh. That could only mean one thing, accordingly. Even if they hadn't perfected their walk with Messiah yet in any particular matter of the law, Elohim knew their hearts, or else he wouldn't have given them the Ruach HaKadesh. Purifying their hearts by faith is the same thing as saying Yahuwah had actively been circumcising them. Their hearts, that is. The spiritual man, or as Yahushua had once put it, the inside of the cup was already being transformed. If that is the case, then the outside of the cup or the flesh would actively be cleansed in time. And if if you guys recall, I'm quoting from, I think it might be in Mark. I'm trying to remember where that was, where uh, he criticized the Parashim, the Pharisees, for They were all about having the outside of the cup look good. But he said, the inside of your cup is dirty. And that's what Yahushua wanted to transform. He wanted to transform the outs, the inside of the cup. And then when you transform the inside of the cup, then the outside of the cup can be clean. Continuing in Acts chapter 15. Oh, yeah, that's right, James. As he said, he called them whitewashed tombs. They're dead inside, but the, the tomb looks glorious on the outside. Verse 10, now therefore, why tempt ye Elohim to put a yoke upon the neck of the Talmudim, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What? But we believe that through the grace of the Adonai Yahusha HaMashiach, we shall be saved even as they. Kiva is seemingly saying the Torah is a yoke, which neither they nor their fathers were able to bear. What gives? Yehusha said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Yochanan said the same thing, that it wasn't grievous in, uh, in Yokanan 5, the Gospel, of five 5.3. No, I'm sorry, first, that's first. First Yocanon five 5.3. Moshe through Yahuwah did as well in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 16. In actuality, Kepha is agreeing with the Torah. And as I've already shown in the past, Yahusha, Yochanan and Moshe have all told us to be obedient to the Father. Still not looking good for team Torah at the moment. Perhaps I am wrong about everything and should hang up my hat and retire. Just so we're clear, grace and repentance are a part of Torah. They always have been. Sacrifices too, but repentance is all Yahuwah ever really wanted in the face of sin, which is part of the the sacrificial process, hopefully. Most Christians have it backwards. They have been told by the propaganda department that the Torah was a works-based system by which everyone was destined to fail, but it wasn't so. Rather, those in a covenant with the Most High were expected to repent of their transgressions and believe in his transforming power. In fact, it was just pausing here just to set this straight, and you guys know this in this group, that the reason that, that Israel was divorced wasn't because they disobeyed the law. It was because they refused to repent, which also is disobeying the law. Like it's 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 a it's a double double. Had they repented, he wouldn't have divorced them. So, again, it's not about uh, the impossible, like Torah is not impossible to keep. If we could remember that repentance is part of the Torah. If you repent, you're fulfilling it. If you're loving, you're fulfilling it. That is what Kifa is ultimately saying here. Read it again if need be. It is salvation through works, which was never a part of the program. If it were, then Kifu wouldn't have said, why tempt Elohim? You can't tempt Elohim if it's in his will. By tempting Elohim, salvation through works is a heavy yoke and never a part of his instructions in righteous living. Therefore, the propaganda department has it wrong. It is through the grace of Yehusha HaMashiach, by which the Yahudim and the Goyim have always been saved since the very beginning of the world. If you don't believe me, then look what Paul has to say about, his, sto- about the, his story of grace. This comes from 2 Timothy. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Adonai, nor of me his prisoner, but be partaker of the affections or the afflictions of the Bezorah, again that's the gospel, according to the power of Elohim, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Mashiach Yehusha before the world began. Difficult indeed arguing that the age of grace is something new, when in fact the holy calling, the royal priesthood, was never according to the works of its adherents. Yahuwah created a nation out of a single man. Yasharal did nothing deserving of their calling. That's what Paul says for those of us paying attention. It was always according to Yahuwah's own purpose and grace. Never forget that part, grace. And also, that Yahushua HaMashiach was operating in it even before the world began. There is nothing new under the sun. Therefore, Kepha is saying the yoke and heavy burden of works-based salvation is the system of man which shows the Torah into their own, um, I'm sorry, skews. It is the system of man which skews the Torah into their own image rather than the other way around, whereby we might conform to the face of the Father through a circumcised heart. Saying one deserves salvation by their hoity-toity and rather flamboyant method acting only tempts Elohim. He is responding to the contorted worldview of the certain men whom we have already encountered in verses 1 and 2. They were the ones tempting Elohim and advocating salvation through circumcision, not the believing perishing presence. Otherwise, Kepha has no beef with the act of circumcision. In review, there are two positions being offered on the table. The unbelievers in verse one wanted the Torah kept for salvation. That's the first option. The second was presented by the believers. The Torah of Moshe was to be obeyed, but only after they first believed, which is a part of the uh, obeying it to begin with, really, to believe in it. As Yahudim they understood full well that they had an advantage over the nations insomuch so much that they had studied the Torah from their youth. The goyim, however, were just coming into it and would learn in time. These were the Perishim making the arguments. And by the way, guys, that describes all of us. We are the goyim that are being, um, you know, brought back into this and grafted into Israel. And we are learning as we go. We are learning obedience, right? Hopefully, you guys all see your own place in this. That we're not all like, we didn't all just get it right on the first day. And, you know, we were, you know, circumcised and saved right away. And we, we were, you know, we were down with uh, Elohim's graces and all that kind of stuff. These were the parishioners making the argument. They were present at the meeting and nobody is scolding them. As evidence, there is no third option whereas the Torah is being done away with, continuing. Then all the multitudes kept silence and gave audience to Barnabi and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders Elohim had wrought among the other nations by them. Now, keep in mind that Kepha has already said that, you know, that the surrounding nations, that the, the Ruach HaKodesh was Uh, brought into them. And so now Paul and Barnabas are just affirming what Kepha has already said. And after they held their peace, Yaakov answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Oh, so now we're getting serious because now we got Yaakov saying, Okay, I'm about to speak, guys. about to lay it down. What I say goes, Shimon hath declared how Elohim at the first did visit the other nations to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after Yahuwah and all the other nations upon whom my name is called save Yahuwah. Who doeth all these things. Known unto Elohim are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, so he quoted the prophet there. And, um, and then uh, he's quoting from, well, we'll get to it. He's quoting from Amos, but now he's, he's speaking his sentence. Wherefore, my sentence is, see, nobody else gives a sentence in this, just Yaakov, not even Paul, that we trouble them not, which from among the other nations are turned to Elohim, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. You have to wonder why he says that he commanded to write to them, and we don't have many letters from these apostles. You have to wonder why. For Moshe of old time has in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sunday. Wait, no, wait, scratch that. (laughs) Every Sabbath in the synagogues. The best part of any phenomenal narrative is often uh, kept in reserve for the closure, which is precisely what happened here. Yaakov's speech is an award winner, in my opinion. Look at what he does. He agrees with Kifa, Kifa's observations that Elohim has indeed visited the other nations, but then takes it a step further. He uses the prophets to back them. There are actually several prophets which endorse this message, but Yaakov has decided to go with Amos 9 it seems. A time was coming when the surrounding nations would seek after Yahuwah and call upon his name. In turn, Amos falls in agreement with Moshe when speaking through Yahuwah and said, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 30 through 31, when thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to Yahuwah Eloheika, that means Yahuwah your Elohim, and shall be obedient unto his voice, for Yahuwah Elohaika is is a merciful El, he will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swore unto them. The greater context here is that Yashiro would be handed a bill of divorce and cast into the surrounding nations. The reason being is that they refused to repent of their transgressing the Torah. Astoundingly, The children of Yashorel became the Goyim. And so those are the people being called into the sheepfold. The Goyim are being grafted back into Yashorel. And as you can clearly see, Yahuwah promises to be merciful to those who call upon his name in the later times. And and it's his name, guys. It's not the Lord, right? His name is important. Seeking to be obedient unto his voice again there is the grace which Kepha hearkened to. The four things which Yaakov mentions are idols, fornication, things strangled, and blood. They were all pagan temple practices. Rather than being circumcised at the first, Yaakov was saying a new convert must cease and desist immediately from these things when entering into the salvation journey. So he's judging, okay, instead of circumcising right away these four things are what's more important and here's why believers cannot be a part of a pagan occultic religion and in a marriage covenant with yahuwah at the same time and those four things comes from from torah just we're all clear it simply cannot be done my suspicion is that yaakov is specifically commenting upon those so-called converts whom the unbelieving proselytizers were circumcising after being quote-unquote saved the circumcised might return straightway into spiritual adultery, as I've already mentioned. And despite being a merciful ill, Yahuwah can't have that. The final line is the pass- password and the decoder in understanding all of this, while conveniently it is the most often ignored. Yaakov judges in favor of the believing perishim, the Torah abides. It is Unreasonable to expect that new believers would understand every matter of the Torah from the very get-go. But because Moshe is being taught in the synagogues of every city that is being preached, Yaakov judges that the faithful sort will read and dissect the law little by little with each approaching Shabbat. In time, a circumcised heart will convict him of fleshly circumcision if he hasn't been circumcised already. That settles it then. The Jerusalem council favored a heavenly kingdom by which the believers would enter a covenant with Yahuwah via the faith of old rather than a new one. The deduction is easy to follow. Those who found faith in Elohim would immediately leave their occultist practices, their pagan practices, behind them and then begin learning obedience through Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living. Yahuwah is to be worshipped, but not as the pagans worship him. I don't know if you guys can hear the background soundtrack. My My baby girl Rivka is crying. Paul's attendance in Yerushalim is of the utmost importance. He furthermore engaged in the debate. Kifa agreed with him. By all indications, Yaakov's ruling favored both testimonies. Salvation came through faith, whereas obedience was something which would be learned by the faithful. There is only one instruction. She's pretty angry right now. I don't know if you can hear her. She has been she is being taken out of the room for uh, disrupting our Sabbath get together. There is only one instruction in righteous living, and it is the Torah. And so I ask you, why would Paul then turn around and hack away at the Torah for his going friends? If he did, then Dr. Lucas would be lying, lying and claiming those were false accusations perpetrated by the Jews. Just as importantly, Paul would not only be in violation of the apostle's decision, but he would also be a false prophet. It seems to me the writings of Paul begin to make a lot more sense when reading them in the light of Yaakov's decision. All right, we survived that. I am sitting right now in the hottest corner of of our house, in our fifth wheel, and the sun is bearing on me i'm sweating bullets i survived that it took an hour to get through it thank you for sitting through that we will move on very soon to the genesis targum but i wanted to open this up and um just let you guys have your comments and i will point out that i there were a couple errors in the first one the um the, the pork one i was my wife, I think, was in uh, pre-labor when I wrote that. And I'm like, I still have time to clap one out. I could get this one out. And I, did, like, <laughs> I got it out in a few hours. But um, like, I, I guess I went with the King James Version because I didn't have time to write out the sufferer.
1: And there was a couple of little errors in there. But whatever. I'll have to fix it later.
2: As you can
0: tell, I'm pausing from talking. I am drinking some coffee. But if anyone has anything on this, hopefully I didn't butcher the Book of Acts.
2: Is my microphone working?
0: Your mic is working.
2: Woo! All right. That was awesome. I love that. That was a really, really good presentation. Well done, well done. I wanted to um, ask you if you had heard about the um, the thought that if, you know, Yahushua was advocating for things being fulfilled, done away with, abolished, all that, and that all things were considered clean, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then how come in Acts, you have Peter, who was with Yahushua for the whole time, how come Peter is still, you know, never allowing any unclean thing to enter into his lips if his if his rabbi was walking around saying, no, no, it's good now because I'm about to die.
0: Well, some, here's something else to to consider. Okay, so I, I don't know at what point the book of Acts was written. You guys know that I believe that the entire canonical New Testament was, um, was fleshed out by probably 67 AD. Um, so, you know, I think most of it was probably in the late 50s early 60s and so you have 30 years that go by 25 30 years where nobody is is running this stuff like the gospel of mark uh was written after mark was a follower of peter akifa and kifa dies and according to what I read by the earliest sources, the Alexandrian church in Egypt, they were like pleading with Mark. Like, can you please write, you know, Peter's words, his stories down? And he didn't want to do it. And finally, he's like, OK, fine, I'll write, you know, his gospel down. And, you know, some people theorize that the gospel of Mark is the most embarrassing and that Luke, who was also a counterpart, uh, contemporary of Mark, uh, he wrote the, his Luke and Acts to try to to kind of autocorrect. Mark Mark was just writing off his memory of things that Peter had said. But my point is, is that this stuff was all written at the very end. Like the, the, the apostles are dying off and, and this generation's like, um, we, we have the Messiah and nobody's going to remember this guy. Like, I think we need to write down, uh, his stories and we need to get this, you know, into writing. And, um, and so this is where, you know, acts comes into it. So we have Peter's vision. The only time, we hear about Peter's vision is in the book of Acts. So my point is, uh, let's say that happened within, you know, I don't know. I I'd have to look at a timeline within five years or so, uh, certainly within 10 years of Messiah res- uh, resurrecting. So he has this vision and he so let's just assume for the moment that the vision says that he can eat uh, kitten and puppy. He's free to, you know, stick a fork in them now. Well, the problem with this is that the rest of the world is still operating upon the fact that you have these veteran Yahudim who've been in it, you know, since before Messiah, they've been, you know, holding to the Torah. They're, you know, leading these churches. And then there's this vision this one guy PiFA has on the other side of the Mediterranean, and we're all supposed to adhere to this now and anybody in the right minds would go, yeah, so somebody had a dream that I can eat a gorilla now. yeah, I'm gonna start doing that like that doesn't make any sense contextually the The only reason we know about this is because because once again Luke is telling us about these you know these false accusations and that um you know and and that the fact that Kifa was open to sit down with Gentiles now, because that's not even in the Torah. That's not in the Torah that you cannot sit and minister with, you know, and eat a meal with the, the surrounding nations. I mean, the Yahushua did that. If you guys pay attention, Yahushua was accused of sitting down with sinners and he did it. And so Kifa was just now being, you know, given more uh, correction from the from the father you know uh um, Hamashiach on continuing what he was already doing and that makes the most sense the, the alternative to me doesn't make any sense i mean again i'll repeat this if i'm sitting in i'm a you know i'm i'm 41 years old i'm say it's 40 AD. So I was, you know, I was 30 years old when Messiah walked the earth. I knew him personally, but I was raised in Torah my entire life. I've never touched an unclean thing. And then I hear that some guy has a vision and it's not even written in book form at this point. I'm gonna be like, yeah, no, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to go apostate because some guy is claiming something against the Torah. But as we have seen here, I mean, that would be uh, Deuteronomy 13 stone the guy he's telling us to go after you know balaam's um you know or food sacrifice to idols you know these kind of things like this serious sin and nobody was claiming that
2: okay so to that um to that claim that he makes of um associating with gentiles or going into their homes um was considered unlawful does does he get that from um, a mistranslation or a misinterpretation of Torah itself, or was he getting that from rabbinical tradition that he had accepted as being the way of the land?
0: That's a good question, isn't it? Um, I don't see him getting that from Torah because if he did, then Yehusha is now in invo- um, uh, an error of Torah, and the people who were claiming him, you know, or accusing him of eating with sinners were always the Parashim. And so they're going off of their traditions. And I I kind of speculate that one of the reasons that Yahushua spoke in so many parables was because the language had been too diluted, you know, like to, to, he couldn't, it had become so, um, that the words had lost their value. If that makes any sense to anybody, like you, you couldn't just, if you just quoted from the Torah, and he'd be like, okay, do this, and then the Pharisees were like, well, we do, we do do those things, right? When in fact they they weren't. They were they were very disobedient because they were creating their own their own um added laws, and they were doing away with it essentially. And so he had to speak in very fresh words that conveyed the very concepts that's of Torah, which they were not keeping, you know, to convey the the message of the kingdom. And so that's my theory on this, and that uh, that Kepha was ultimately getting this from the circumcision group, probably. And, you know, this is, of course, the point of contention, of course, right, with Paul and, you know, the book of Galatians. I was just reading through Galatians this week, and and it was just really interesting, according to Paul, and it's a one-sided argument, but he claims that Kepha kind of um, cowered under the circumcision group again. The circumcision group shows up. And he's like, um, you know, I'm going to step away from eating from these these Gentiles who he had the vision that said he could. So clearly there was a lot of pressure to to conform. And, you know, a good way of understanding this is that within all the different, if you were to enter a community, it would almost be like maybe a homestead today. Maybe it's not the same way. But if you enter any community, there's these guidelines, these rules that you have to follow. And the Qumran community is great for this because they've documented a lot of their guidelines and people will say it's filled with a lot of leaven and so on and so forth, but there were very specific things about how if you were to enter the community of Qumran and to not be in violation of that community, there were certain ways that you could not approach the Goyim, um, things like that. And so the circumcision group, we don't know all the specifics, or if we do, I haven't read it myself. They had very certain... Um, ideas on what it was to be righteous. Now the, the definition of righteousness, as I see it, it is uh, fulfilling a standard, or no, it is a conforming to a standard of a community. all right? So if we are declared righteous before the most High, it is because we are conforming to the standard um, of the Torah. We are conforming to a, a you know um, a certain way of doing things. And so the circumcision group would have had their own idea of righteousness as well. And it is you conform to their standards. Uh, If you're going to declare these people righteous, they better be circumcised, you know, and that's that's uh, or they better, you know, you better not be eating with um, the Gentiles. That's not righteous. Right. So that could have been a huge stumbling block for them with Yahushua. Like this guy can't be the Messiah because he's eating with the Gentiles or the um, the sinners, I should say. In that context, it was the sinners.
1: Thank you, Noel, for, for the preparation that you put into this. I got to say, uh, uh, I came to this meeting with uh, a little bit of reservation, and uh, that probably comes from hearing so much pall bashing as of late. Um, it, it's like a snowball going downhill, that this is taking more and more traction and growing more. And after listening to a few of these things, I again, I was a little bit apprehensive tonight uh, to see what would be said, but yet I still showed up here. And I want to thank you for your presentation. It's well researched, well put together, and uh, I, I certainly enjoyed it. What I really see with what's happening back then is exactly the same thing that's happening now. You know, I mentioned uh, the Paul bashing and it's it's going on. It was going on back then. and It's going on now for people that are misrepresentative or misunderstood. And in the and I find for the general, generally, for the most part, people aren't well researched. They'll cherry pick a a thing here or there out of the writings of that are attributed to Paul uh, that that fits their narrative or their worldview and then give uh, a lot of voice. to The same thing was going on back then, uh, but it was certainly written in, a, in the ways that people could understand it clearer back then. Uh, people were more Torah minded, if you will. The whole community, as you just spoke to, was a Torah community for the most part. And these were the ones that, um, uh, really were not well searched out in in the things that were going on at that time. It seems to me that these matters had to be flushed out. If you look at this, what occurred to uh, Kepha as a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled, and it certainly was fulfilled, then it, it kind of goes without saying that these things have to be flushed out as one would test a prophet and the things that he said that that was a process that was going on even back then through this and it was as you said it was news and it was kind of alarming because it, it went against the the uh, understood doctrinal uh, viewpoints that so many of the people back then had so time proved this to be, uh, a flushed-out prophecy, if you will, that had could stand on its own merit. And, you know, it's only those today that are well-researched in this that are going to get this full depth of understanding. And you, you did a really good job of presenting that tonight through your research. Again, I want to thank you for that. And uh, I'm so relieved that... <laughs> And I'm not accusing you of this, but I'm so relieved that it was not it's just another
0: night of shallow bashing. So, you know, it's funny about research is that I was, I can't, so you know I, I gave my testimony last week, and you could listen to that in the video I put out called uh, "Paul on Trial: Apostle or False Apostle." And one thing I didn't mention in there is that my entire life growing up in the church, I was always one of those guys where, uh, and if you can maybe turn off your microphone, too, um, until you're oh, done. Sure. Yeah, just so yeah. we don't get to echo and all. Uh, I was always one of those guys in Bible studies who people would be like, OK, what is what is Noel going to say next? You know, they would like turn to me and I'd always have things to say about the Bible that would people would go like, what? You know, and then when I came over to Torah, I was. For the first time in my life, I was the Torah folk. I had never encountered anything like that. I'm surrounded by people who, like, I felt like I was all of a sudden doggy paddling. You know against the current like i had never seen so many people who had such depth of knowledge of scripture and that is because you know i was always trained to read the back of the book to try to understand the front of the book which is a horrible method and it goes against everything you know else in the world that we would ever try to do but nevertheless that was my upbringing now um, i say go to that video and and look at my testimony because Um, I want to be clear here that the people in this group that I want to, I want to be, I want to be open to let people, uh, you know, to seek the truth, to ask questions. Um, I have never, look at the calendar real quick. I have, I hope that I have tried to set an environment where if you are lunar Sabbath, and I'm not, that you are welcome to contribute to the conversation, to show your, your points and your research. Uh, what I don't put up with is uh, hostile people who come over and say, you know, if you do not get onto my calendar, blah, 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 you don't, you know, you're a, you know, you're a gatekeeper and you're a, you know, you know, you don't get the truth like I do. And the father doesn't speak to you and you haven't, you know, you're not in his graces. And, you know, it's all about, you know, pro- you know, ultimately their so self- their ego and trying to prop themselves up and tear others down. I don't put up with that now. In my testimony, I had talked about where I did go through an anti-Paul um, stage of my life. And I'm kind of coming out the other end now and, and showing why uh, Paul, we're just in the book of Acts. This is the second week we've done this and showing that Paul was Tor observant in the book of Acts. And what I started out before this meeting started uh, saying was that when I went into the anti-Paul stance, I said originally, I said, if this is legitimate, I don't know if it's on record. I'm, I remember saying it a few times, but if this is legitimate, then we will see a good outpouring of the spirit and there will be fruit. Now, I have to be careful saying this uh, because I'm not trying to criticize anybody in this room right now who is anti-Paul. I'm not. I'm not thinking about you guys. You guys aren't even in my mind as I say this. But I have seen so much rotten fruit in the anti-Paul position that I can't justify it on that basis, which is ironic that the, one of the reasons I went anti pauls is because I would say things like, look at all the, the rotten fruit that has res- resulted from his ministry with all the, the lawless Christians and de- denominations. It was ironic because there's just not a lot of good fruit that i see as a response to that i i i look for fruits in arguments i when people come up with different calendars they go what's the fruit of that that calendar um you know you look at the flat earth and you see that there was a lot of amazing fruits that came out of the flat earth like people were turning to i was one of them like i turned to Yah, i turned to the Torah because of the flat earth so that's some good fruit right there